Well, good afternoon, Durham. How do you do there? Any Dragonese speakers? We'll try again. How do you do there? <laughs> My name's Kate Edwards, and I'm chief of the tribe of Seven Stories, where we've just opened a, an exhibition with Cressida called A Viking's Guide to Deadly Dragons. But we're here this afternoon, and if we kind of think about it, what feels like a great Viking hall, doesn't it? So we can really imagine that we're all back in the Dark Ages when Vikings ruled the waves and dragons flew in the skies um, and transported back in time with Cressida to those times in the Dark Ages. Cressida's latest book, How to Seize a Dragon's Jewel, has just been published. I hope some of you How to Train Your Dragon fans out there perhaps already read it and know what's happened in the latest adventure of Hiccup Horrendous Haddock III. But to tell us more about where Cressida got our ideas from for this, for this epic Viking serial, I'm very pleased and proud to welcome Cressida Cowell to Durham Book Festival today. Can we have a big Durham welcome for Cressida Cowell? <laughs> Thank you, Kate. Um, the exhibition is, is amazing at Seven Stories. Uh, 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 I just got to see it yesterday, and it is incredible. We'll talk about it a little bit later. I'm Cressida Cowell, and I am the writer and illustrator of the How to Train Your Dragon books. Um, and there are now uh, 10, I think, books in the series. Can we, can we see, do you think? Do we need, can you see well, by the way? Do we need to turn the lights down just a little bit? No? You can see well. You can see the screen. Okay. Because um, last time we turned the light, and well, we'll see with it as we go on. Um, <clears throat> I, 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 as I say, I'm right, the, the writer and illustrator of the How to Train Your Dragon books, which are books about uh, Vikings and a time in which dragons really existed. There were dragons when I was a boy. There were great grim sky dragons that nested on the clifftops like gigantic scary birds. Little brown scuttly dragons that hunted down the mice and rats in well-organized packs. Preposterously huge sea dragons that were 20 times as big as the big blue whale and who killed for the fun of it. You will have to take my word for it, for the dragons are disappearing so fast they may soon become extinct. Nobody knows what is happening. They are crawling back into the sea from whence they came, leaving not a bone, not a fang in the earth for the men of the future to remember them by. So, in order that these amazing creatures should not be forgotten, I shall tell this true story from my childhood. I was not the sort of boy who could train a dragon with a mere lifting of an eyebrow. I was not a natural at the heroism business. I had to work at it. This is the story of becoming a hero the hard way. Okay. So children often write to me and say, what gave you the idea for these stories? And the weird thing is, this kind of is a true story from my childhood. Okay. <laughs> Which it may sound like I'm making that up, but... <clears throat> This is a bit, you see, I think we could see this a bit better. Can we turn down the lights a little bit? Is there any way? Yeah. Can you see a bit better now, guys? Yeah. <clears throat> this is a picture of, of me 
as a little girl. Even a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. This is a picture of me as a little girl. And I'm about nine in this picture. Who here is about nine, roughly, kind of give or take? Yeah. And I show you this picture for a number of reasons. One is, is because, um, as you see in this picture, I'm writing. All the pictures of me at this age, I'm writing or I'm reading a, a, a lot. Um, but I never knew that I could be a writer. I, I didn't know because there was nobody in my family who was a writer. I never met a writer. And one of the reasons I like to come and talk to you and meet you is that I think maybe there's a kid out here. Is there anybody here who likes making things up? Who likes writing stories? Yes, quite a lot of you. And I just say that in case there's somebody out there who wants to... And maybe you can think that that's something that you could be. Why not? Somebody has to do it. Yeah? And I, I, write, I write books for children, but I, my cousin writes for the telly. You know, loads of things. I, I now know what with one thing or another, quite a few people who write for the movies. Things need to be written. Why not you? That's what I say. And so me coming out here and you meeting me makes you think that, okay, maybe it's something you could do. This is me as a kid writing in this very beautiful place. Um, I'm writing... Uh, uh, sorry, can we put the lights down? Have we gone up again? No, you can see. Thank you, yes. I'm writing in this amazing place. My dad was a mad keen bird watcher. Um, and although we lived in London, in the centre of London, in a house without a garden, every year from when I was a baby, we would be taken to this place, uh, this uninhabited island off the west coast of Scotland. Okay. And I don't know if you can see in this picture. And if you go to Seven Stories Exhibition, there's loads of videos of this, because I say this, and sometimes I hear myself talking, and I think, it sounds like I made this whole thing up. <laughs> this sounds like a story, but it really was true. Uh, we were taken to this uninhabited island off the west coast of Scotland, and there was nothing on the island. No houses, no phones, no electricity, no Tesco's, no nothing. No way, we'd be dropped off, we were camping, we dropped off by a local fisherman, we had no boat, and picked up again two weeks later. Okay. With no phone, if somebody broke a leg, what would my parents have done? I have no, no radio. They were crazy. <laughs> who, who here would like to do that? We'd go to an uninhabited island, yeah, this small, with, yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool, actually, pretty cool. Um, and, you know, when you stood on top of this island, you could see sea all around you, yeah? Um, and as I got older, you, you see this little toothy thing there, that thing that looks a bit like a tooth, that is a house. Um, by the time I was nine... Um, my dad had a house built on the island, so we stayed there the whole summer. Yeah. Who would like to do that? Yeah, pretty cool. And, you know, we used to go out on little rubber dinghies, and nobody in the 70s worried as much. <laughs> With no life jackets, we just puddle off. <laughs> so in, in the books, when Hiccup is in the hopeful puffin, you know that little boat he has on his own? We sort of had that, yeah? Anyway, so... The, what gave me the idea for the Vikings is we were sort of living 
like they really did in Viking times. Even when, even when this house was there, we have no phone. Even now, I take my kids there, there's no phone, no electricity, all candlelight. Um, and we were sort of living like people did in Viking times. And this place was the first place the Vikings came to. You know when they invaded Great Britain? This place was the first place they came to and the last place they left. So real Vikings would have lived in this place. And there were little ruined houses all over the island. And I used to play in those houses and real Vikings would have lived there. And I used to lie on the top of that island and look out to sea and imagine what would I do if I saw a Viking sail on the horizon? What would you do yeah, if you saw a Viking sail on the horizon? Sorry, darling? Somebody said, answer. No, I think it was a baby. <laughs> Hide, I think I'd have hidden. Um, so, so this is what gave me the idea for the Vikings, and because we were sort of living like Vikings really did. By the time my dad had the house built, um, we would stay on this island all summer, yeah, the whole of the summer holidays. And then you'd have to go out to sea to catch fish to eat because you can't take enough food to a little island to last you for the whole summer. So we used to go out to sea and catch fish and put lobster pots at the bottom, you know, to catch enough food to eat for the whole summer. We were sort of living like Vikings really lived. So that's how I know what it feels like, kind of, to be a Viking. Um, and this is what gave me the idea for the dragons, okay? Because when you're living on the sea for any amount of time, you realize there are real monsters living in the sea. Okay. One time, we put down this lobster pot on the bottom of the ocean floor, and picking up a, a lobster pot teaches you quite a little bit about suspense as a writer, because you don't know what's going to be in it. One time, we were picking up the lobster pot, and my dad was very tense. What's going to be in it? My dad picked it over the side. And this huge, this sea serpent launched itself at my dad. And you can't see in this picture, but with fangs like this, yeah. And this is um, a conger eel, yeah. A conger eel, conger means ruddy, massive, <laughs> a conger eel with fangs like this. And this thing can take your arm off. Local fishermen, you know, not local fishermen, actually, I'm making that up, but it has taken, it has taken the arms off fishermen. in Because you can see why. It's big. And you can see why uh, people who had seen this, the Vikings lived on the sea, you can see why nations across the world believed in dragons when you see something like this, this kind of serpent creature. And you notice that pictures of dragons often look like a serpent, don't they? They're built on... because So people would have found this, and they'd have found dinosaur bones, and, and the skeleton of a sper sperm whale, when it's dried out, looks very like a dragon, I can tell you. Um, so they'd have found these things, and you can see why they, they, um, they, they thought up dragons. Um, and so we took this thrashing conger wheel, we dragged it behind the boat back to that little island, and it took my dad half an hour to kill it with a knife. Yeah? because you have to be careful of the fangs, you know. And then we smoked it and we ate it and it was yummy. <laughs> My children won't eat fish fingers. <laughs> but if you're hungry, 
you will eat a conger meal. <clears throat> so here are some other extraordinary things that I found in the sea when I was on that island. At the bottom there, does anybody know what this is? Yes, sweetheart. A basking shark, yeah. I, I have um, swum in the harbour. A basking shark is roughly as long. They're a lot bigger than you think. They're about as long as from there to here, really. Long as this hall, okay? Big things. I have swum in the harbour with a basking shark. Uh, a bit anxious. And my dad said, oh, don't worry, they're vegetarian. And I'm like, well, if it's going through the ocean with its mouth open like this, is it going to stop and say, are you a vegetable? No, it's just going to hoover you up, isn't it? Hoover you up. Yeah, that's the difference between my dad and me. And that thing at the top, you know, that looks a bit like a lobster, but it's not a lobster, it's like this big. Here is something that really stuck in my mind. We took this to... We found these in the tangle nets, and we didn't know what they were. So my dad went to a local fisherman and said, what is this? And the local fisherman said... I can't do a Scottish accent, but he said, I've been fishing here for 30 years and I've never seen one of those before. And I found that incredibly exciting. There are things living in the ocean that not even the adults know what they are. Yeah. If those exist, why not dragons? We don't know everything about this amazing world of ours. Maybe dragons exist if those creatures have species of it. Because extraordinary things live in the sea. Okay. These are some of the extraordinary things. What, for instance, is it? If I was to tell you there was something in the ocean, a fish that looked like a grumpy old man, you would think I was making it up, wouldn't you? Um, but there really is this fish that looks like a grumpy old man. What's this? This is... Uh, this is, I think those are its eyebrows. That's a, a lionfish at uh, uh, the left. Um, and this thing is a, an anglerfish, and it's got this light on the end of its nose that attracts fish to it, and then, you know, the, it, it, they come to its light because it lives at the bottom of the ocean, and, and it, it, it um, eats them because it's attracted by the light. So there are these extraordinary species of things that really do live in the sea. And this is what gave me the idea for the different types of dragons. Because I told you my dad was a mad keen bird watcher, didn't I? Well, as far as he was, he was really mad. He was, you know, RSPB, yeah, the protection of, but Royal Society of Protection of Birds. He was chairman of the RSPB for years. M mad about birds. So a bird was never just a bird. It was a lesser spotted, greater, grieved something, you know? And so I thought, if I'm going to make my dragons feel real, they're going to be all these different species of dragons. Different types. Because here's the first thing I'm going to teach you about writing, okay? Writing is like telling a really good lie. A real stretcher. The more detail you put into the lie, and the more it's based on a tiny grain of truth, the more it comes alive in your head. So, close your eyes for a second. Okay. If I say, Gob of the Belch had a big red beard, can you see the beard in your head? Kind of. If I say, Gob of the Belch had a beard like exploding fireworks, or Gob of the Belch had a beard like a hedgehog struck by lightning... 
Do you see how you can see the beard a little bit clearer? It's the detail. It's the detail that you put into your writing that makes it all come alive in your head. Uh, by the way, I just put that picture of that one up because he was so ugly. I felt sorry for him. That one on the right, so ugly. Uh -oh. So this is what I do to make the lie come alive in your head. There's a posh word for it. It's research. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's research into true things to make you believe that the impossible is possible, that things that aren't true are true, yeah. And, and it's also looking at things and, and putting in lots of detail to, in things to make you feel that things are real even when they're not real. Loads of people write to me and say, it's so strange, your stories feel real even though, and it's all about that, basing... We're excellent listeners, writers. We listen to the way that people talk. Uh, and then you write the way that people talk. You know, you look at the way that people move. If you're writing for, for telly or if you're trying to... An actor is a sort of a writer if they're, you know, making up a person and trying to make you believe that they am them, yeah? Somebody like Catherine Tate, you know, her old lady... She'll have looked at the way that old ladies move. She'll have looked at that in order that you believe the impossible is, impos is possible, that she is something that she isn't, that the lie is real. We're all doing it all the time. Anyway, so I, I base all my di different dragon peach species on all the beautiful things, extraordinary creatures that I, there are in the world. For instance, this basking shark... I turn, I mix it up with a giant ray, you know those giant rays, and then an, an anglerfish, and I put this light on the end of its nose, like the anglerfish, and then I call it a giant bee eater, and I have it drifting through the forests of berserk in this book, How to Dra Break a Dragon's Heart, yeah? And so it's a mixture of things in real life. It's a curious mixture of things in real life. This is a chameleon, I love chameleons. Um, and I, I take the chameleon and turn it into a mood dragon, a dragon that changes colour according to its mood. So I generally add another little thing to it, a little... I take something so it feels real and then push it just a little bit too far. So it, it, it changes colour according to its mood. When it lies, it turns purple. Um, and, uh, and these ideas are what... You know, these real creatures are what give me the ideas for the hugely different species of dragons in the books. So, for instance, um, a scarer, where are the scarer? The scarers, there is a scarer, some, oh, it's a, a bat-like um, dragon. Where is it, darling? Just next to the, oh yes, just next to the sea dragon of Stragantacus Maximus is the scarer, okay? And that's based on a vampire bat, okay? I'm sorry, grown-ups, <laughs> this is a bit gross, um, but vampire bats really do anaesthetise you before they bite you uh, when you're sleeping um, because they, they don't want you to wake up so that they can feed on your blood for longer. I'm sorry, that's really true. Don't go to sleep in the Amazon. 
<laughs> okay, so I take that and then I make the scare a feed on the adrenaline caused by fear, which, you know, it takes it a little bit further and therefore it scares you before it bites you um, and that sort of thing. And then um, polar serpents, narwhals, there really are whales that have horns on the ends of their noses. Yeah, so that's what gave me the idea for all the different species of dragons. Um, and then what do I do? I've got this world, this universe of dragons, and the next thing I do is I draw a map. And loads of writers draw maps. And, um, uh, I mean, for instance, uh, Treasure Island. Have you heard of a book called Treasure Island? Yeah, amazing book. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote the book, said, before I even thought of the story, I drew the map of Treasure Island. And as I drew the map, the pirates came creeping out of the map at me. Long John Silver with his sword between his teeth. Um, so the drawing of the map gave him the idea for the story. Uh, Peter Pan, the Neverland is a map of a boy's mind. I love that idea. And coincidentally, uh, the How to Train Your Dragon books are also about an island and about growing up <coughs> and about flying and a, a villain with a hook on it. But it's a complete coincidence. <coughs> uh, anyway, yes, uh, the Neverland is a map of a boy's mind. I drew this map. And I, I bet you J.K. Rowling has drawn a map of Hogwarts so that she knows exactly how long it takes to get from one dormitory to another. I'm about to go off track. <coughs> Sorry. But... Um, uh, for instance, there was a great film director of a film called The Shining, which you really shouldn't see yet, kids. <laughs> Don't see The Shining for some time, but it's a brilliant uh, horror movie. Um, the director, Stanley Kubrick, is a genius. And it's about a really spooky old hotel, and he drew a map of this hotel in order that he knew exactly how the, the rooms were connected to each other. Yeah, he treated this imaginary place as if it was a real place. And so it makes the thing more scary. So when the little boy is going through the hotel and that kind of grown-ups who have seen this in that little kind of little car thing, he knows that the, that the place, the space makes sense. He's treated it like it's a real space. People who make things up are obsessive about that. They make things feel real. They go into the detail. Like J.K. Rowling will have drawn, you know, because she would have, you, you know more about this cake than I do. She will, she will have drawn sort of, um, uh, what do we call it when you draw um, who's related to who? Going, like family, family trees, going back that don't actually find their way into the books. But she'll have done that. She knows that so that it's like a real universe in her head. And that's what makes it feel real. Anyway. So, back to the map. I drew the map, and this is what gave me the idea for the dragons. Um, and I also go into schools and say, why not draw a, a map of your imaginary place and, and write a story about it, about it? It's a fantastic way to start a story. Um, and, um, and I was going to show you a map um, that sort of, because often the other thing is, is that children think that they ought to be writing books like this when they're nine, yeah? Nobody writes books like this when they're nine, okay? And in order to show you what I mean, they start small, they start, you know, they start doing things like this. 
This is a map that is sort of like the kind of thing that you could draw, isn't it? And it's got kind of monkey's land on it. And I think up there it's got great glass town. It looks like the kind of thing that you could do, doesn't it? And this is just a little scrabbly book made of pieces of paper, isn't it? So, you know, with illustrations a bit like you could do, okay? And these books are very, very tiny, so small that they can fit into your hand, okay? And these books were, in fact, written by somebody when they were nine years old called Charlotte Bronte, okay? And she grew up to be one of the greatest writers in the English language, yeah? But she started like this, with things like this, things that you could do, yeah? So that's what I'm saying, yeah? You start by doing things like that, this, and then, you know, as you get older, um, you start writing proper books. Okay. <sighs> Hiccup Render Helper. This is the first drawing I drew of Hiccup. And when I was writing these books, I do all the illustrations as well, um, which I keep on forgetting to put on the front. I must, people say, oh, do you do all the illustrations? Yes, I have done for all 10 books, <laughs> all my illustrations, uh, which you can see at the Seven Stories exhibition that Kate has put on in Newcastle. Um, I draw all the pictures, and I, the pictures right from the beginning were a really important part of the books. Um, uh, I was wanting to write books. My brother didn't really read very much. I read masses of books when I was a kid, but my brother didn't read very much, which was weird, I thought. So I thought, I'm going to write books that are so exciting and so funny that he would have to want to read them, yeah? And I'm going to, I'm going to fill them with illustrations and make the books, even the books themselves, look exciting so that they look like they've been ripped by dragons and they've been um, chewed and been down to the bottom of the sea and back again, and I'm going to splatter ink splats. So it looked like they might be bloodstains, sorry, <laughs> bloodstains or, or ink or, or, um, or, or sea or something, and I'm going to set fire to the pages. Sometimes I do set fire to the pages in order to look like dragons have set fire to it. So I'm going to make the book itself look look like a, an exciting thing, and I'm going to put the illustrations in the book um, so that they're normally when books like this, normally books like this, they just leave holes for the illustrations. This is like a 400-page picture book. So the text and the illustrations all fit together, yeah? Which is a design nightmare, <laughs> unfortunately. But, um, uh, but it's so it looks like something exciting. And it's also because um, children today are l more visual than they were even when I was a kid. Loads of films, loads of telly, so that's to make it look visual, yeah? Children are much more visual than they were when I was little, and so that's, that's, that's because of that as well. And Hiccup is having a little bit of difficulty living up to his father, Stoic the Vast. This is Stoic the Vast. And he's, here he's saying in this picture, I declare a blood feud. Because um, Hiccup's not like that. Uh, the Vikings, where Hiccup is living, think that being a, a hero means being really tough and big and a bit, not, not that bright in the brain department, but really tough. Is that what a hero is, do we think? Possibly not. I don't know. Anyway, he's supposed to be like that. That's what he's supposed to be like. Oh, this is the DreamWorks 
um, vision of Stoic the Vast, you see, really big and tough. Could we bring the lights down just a little bit? I still think you got, yes. Can you see that better? Yeah. Um, and yes, this is big booby Bertha. <laughs> These bosoms have killed before, and they will kill again. So, so this is the kind of adult that Hiccup is supposed to be. And he isn't, he's not quite like that. And the books are about that, you know, because he's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not the kind of hero that, um, uh, that his parents are expecting him to be. And some people have asked me, why did you make Hiccup the hero? And that's an interesting question. Why didn't I make him just the guy who's everybody thinks is marvellous right from the beginning? Well, because actually I think it can teach you quite a lot if... <clears throat> everything don't, doesn't go right for you right from the beginning. What it teaches Hiccup, Hiccup has to stick up right from the beginning for his best friend Fishlegs, who's a runt, so he has no parents. He was washed up on the shores of Burke in an old lobster pot. And Hiccup has to stick up for his friend um, Fishlegs right from the beginning. And what I'm saying there is being a hero starts right here, yeah? When you're young, in the classroom. If you've got a friend who... Uh, you know, is being bullied or something like that. It's the kind of person who sticks up for his friend when he's being bullied, yeah? That's how being a hero starts. And it starts there because Hiccup's going to have to learn to be a hero on a miles bigger scale. So he's had a lot of practice right from the beginning. He's had a lot of practice. And I'll explain why he has to be a hero on a bigger scale in a moment. This is... Kamikaze, the girl hero in the books, and I'll tell you, I'll admit why I created Kamikaze. It was because my daughter, Maisie, who was six at the time, said, why isn't there a girl hero in these books? And I felt a bit ashamed, <laughs> as I ought to have done. And so I said, OK, I'm going to make you the coolest girl hero in the entire universe. So Kamikaze is brilliant. She's a fantastic sword fighter. And, um, and she's got this very long blonde hair that is difficult to brush that may be a little bit like my daughter's. And she never stopped talking, which is very like my daughter's. Um, <clears throat> so... <clears throat> The How to Train Your Dragon books start here. This is where the first book starts. On, at the bottom, by coincidence, of a real cliff on that island I was talking to you about. Remember I was talking to you about that little island? Yeah, this is a real cliff on that island. Who can see something weird about this cliff? Yes, sweetheart. There is. There is a red part of that in the bottom. Yep. What else? Yeah. Does look like a face. Isn't that weird? I used to think that was so weird. I used to lie just about here, looking up at that face and think how strange truth is, so much stranger than fiction. And the first book starts at that point. Um, Hiccup is standing at the bottom of that cliff. There really is a cave in that cliff that looks like an eye. And at the beginning of How to Train Your Dragon, Hiccup has to climb up that cliff. And imagine if in the right eye of that cliff, there was a tunnel, a cave. And if at the bottom of the cave, there was a dragon nursery with 
thousands of sleeping baby dragons in it. Imagine. And at the beginning of How to Train Your Dragon, Hiccup has to climb up that cliff as an initiation test into his tribe and creep down that tunnel and steal one of the sleeping baby dragons without waking up the others. Anybody know why? Why not wake up the others? Yes, darling? Yeah, they would, they would swarm. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunate yeah, thing about dragons, yeah. Even the small ones in their thousands can be dangerous. So this is what Hiccup has to do at the beginning of How to Train Your Dragon. He has to climb the cliff and steal himself a dragon. And he's supposed to steal one of these really cool, monstrous nightmare dragons, and he doesn't. He steals, the dragon he steals is called Toothless, this really small, little, very disobedient hunting dragon called Toothless. Uh, uh, and Hiccup um, <laughs> has a problem training this dragon, who may, may, may be a little bit like my children when they were two, this dragon, just a little bit, or, or my cat, Lily. Um, and, uh, but the one thing, the advantage he has is that he can speak Dragonese. And I'm going to read you a little bit of Dragonese, but before I do, you absolutely, if you are an adult, you have to put your hands over your ears. Absolutely non-negotiable hands over your ears, seriously, because this really isn't a suitable language for adults. No, there's an adult without your hands over your ears. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Here are some common dragon phrases to get you started. Nea quapa in a dehusus pishu, which means no pooing inside the house, please. Me mama, not like it. Yum, yum, auntie palm. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> that always makes me laugh. My mother does not like to be bitten on the bottom. Please, would you be so kind as to spit out my friend? Okay. I'll quickly do you toilet training just because I like it. Um, toothless, toothless. Tarkoklet me wanty tarkakak in the green called quack spot, which means toothless. You know I want you to poo in the dragon toilets. Toothless. Oh, yesy, yesy, me coglet, which means, oh, yes, yes, I know. You pointing at a large poo in the middle of Stoic's bed. Ugh, quasta, sa, which means, so what then is this? Toothless, hopefully. Um, um, chocolate snick snack? You, not a chocolate snick snack, is a cat cat, is a cat cat, de toothless, not in the green quack quack spot, may ooplevang splosh in de middling de sleepy slab de papa, which means, this isn't a chocolate biscuit, it's a poo. It's one of your poos, Toothless, and it isn't in the dragon toilets. It's right bang splat in the middle of my father's bed. Okay, so there you go. And my idea was that you could learn the whole language. I've got a tiny problem, though. And you know A Hero's Guide to Dragly Dragons? I was going to make that a whole Dragonese dictionary because I've written it, but I never get to publish the whole thing. Who thinks that a book always needs a story in it? Who would get a Dragonese dictionary? Who would get a book? Oh, using this market research here. <laughs> Who would get a book of all the species of the dragons? 
Uh, with, oh, yes, okay. And who thinks it would need to have a kind of a story in it or as well? Not many. I'll tell the publisher. I'll tell the publisher. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah, these, these really cute baby dragons, but I don't have a chance to talk about them. Okay. Um, I had a problem... <laughs> One of the things about how to, one of the great things about being a writer is you get to make things happen that you really wish could have happened in real life. And I just couldn't decide whether I wanted who would like this really cute little hunting dragon. Yeah, that you know about that size that you could put down your shirt who was pretty disappoint, disobedient. Who would like that? I would. Who would like one of those really cool riding dragons that you can ride on the back of and you could go into school and everybody would be so jealous? Yeah. And who would like one of those enormous sea dragons, three times as big as this room, really, really scary and terrifying? You guys are crazy. <laughs> they would eat you. I'm telling you, they're not very easily trained. Anyway, so um, the idea of flying was amazing. That's one of the things. I would always wanted to be able to fly. And one of the many things I liked about the movie was, because in a book you can't really show flying, can you? It's just a bunch of description. But in the movie, the flying scenes were awesome. I thought, I loved, I loved the flying scenes in the movie. I thought, I am biased. They were better than Avatar. <laughs> but, um, but you really felt... Who felt that they were actually flying in those flying scenes? Yeah, it was the closest. It is the closest. It will be so great to be able to fly on the back of the dragon, but that's kind of the nearest you can get. Now, as you go through the books, you kind of begin to realise that Hiccup's quest is bigger than you thought it was in the first place. Um, and uh, as you go through, each, each book is set on a different island in this huge archipelago. And a lot of the storylines are based on true things about Vikings, which, okay, I'm going to see. Who thinks that the Viking, am I telling the truth or am I telling you a lie about Vikings here? Did Vikings ski? Who thinks Vikings really really did ski. Yeah. Who thinks I'm telling a huge porky pie? Yeah, they really did ski. Okay, I discovered this. They skied and they skated because Scandinavia is covered in snow for most of the year round. And in order for... I mean, they may be... This is where I say I take it just a little bit further. Okay, they maybe didn't downhill ski. <laughs> I have a downhill ski chase in which Hiccup actually skis on the, off the end of a cliff like in, in The Spy Who Loved Me, you know, James Bond. Uh, that might not have happened. Um, but How to Cheat a Dragon's Dragon's Curse is all about skiing and ski chases and things like that. Um, and, uh, and that really is. And Kate, helpfully, has found an actual Viking ice skate. Not a ski, because I think they were probably made of wood. And this ice skate is made of bone, a real Viking ice skate, which he has put in my exhibition to show that the books are entirely true. <laughs> so thank you, Kate, for that. <laughs> okay. Um, and so real facts about Vikings. Who thinks? Okay, bear in mind, I might be telling you a lie sometimes. 
I'm a bit tricky. Who thinks that the Vikings, like in How to Ride a Dragon Storm, really did have a swimming competition in full body armor in which, in which the winner was the last man back? Who thinks that really happened? Who thinks that that's just stupid? And the Vikings would have known that armor wasn't very floaty. The Vikings were that stupid. <laughs> Who thinks, okay, here's another fact. That's in How to Ride Dragon Storm. Who thinks that Vikings discovered America, not Christopher Columbus? Who thinks that's a lie? Oh, they really did. <laughs> they really did. There's a Viking settlement on America. That's in How to Ride a Dragon Storm. Who thinks that the Vikings were big slave traders and there was a big um, you know, thing in Dublin, slave trading? Who thinks that's a lie? It's true. Who thinks this is the best one of all? Might be a lie. Who thinks that Vikings trained cats and hung them round their necks and took them into battle? Okay. And when they were fighting somebody, they threw the cats at the opponent's head because it's very, very difficult to fight somebody when a cat is attacking your head. <laughs> Have I just gone too far? Is that true? True? Yes, it is true, apparently. <laughs> it's all true! <laughs> okay, that was fun. Anyway, so... Along the way, Hiccup finds that uh, he's, yes, he gets the slave mark. And he's he discovered through the books that actually his quest is much bigger than he thought it was going to be. Um, and he's going to have to stand up against his whole tribe because they are keeping slaves. They are keeping slaves. Even his father, Stoic the Vast, who doesn't personally keep slaves in his tribe, He's let it happen across the archipelago. And Hiccup has to begin to stand up against his father, which is difficult. Uh, um, and this one, he, yes. Um, Hiccup stood there quietly looking up at his father. He thought of one of old Wrinkley's saying, sometimes you have to stand up for what you believe in, even against those you love, and that can be harder than you think. He had never dreamed it would be this hard. Father, said Hiccup, if you are king, will you free the dragons? And Sirik said, son, the dragons can never be freed. Uh, the rebellion must be put down strongly and firmly. The rogue dragons must be taught a lesson they can never forget. It is too dangerous to free the dragons. You will understand this when you are older. Yeah. No, I won't, thought Hiccup. I am older and I still don't understand. So Hiccup is having to um, stand up against everybody around him. Because, and he accidentally, long story, there are eight books, no, nine books, no, ten books. Ah, so I'm trying to collapse ten books into five minutes. Um, but in this book, he's released this dragon called the Dragon Furious, who is, is started a dragon rebellion. Because he points out that the humans are hunting the dragons, kind of extinction. We have form, don't we, human beings, in this respect. You know, all the amazing species of fish and things that I was showing you? Yeah, humans have a, have a way of hunting things so that they become extinct. All those lovely insects, 
in the Amazon, yeah? What is happening to them, yeah? So this is what the dragon says. In this world, when Hiccup releases him from the forest, so it's all Hiccup's fault that he releases this dragon. In this world, my dragon brothers are everywhere in chains. Humans are enslaving us like dogs. They're riding us like horses. They're removing our fire and clipping our wings, clipping our wings and breaking our hearts. There is no longer room on our planet for dragon and human. And when I look into the future, I see we are running out of time. I also see that if I do not stop you, you hiccup will be the end of us all. You will send us into our final oblivion. Who, me? Squeaked Hiccup, but I love dragons. You've got this all wrong. If you grow to manhood, that will spend the end of us, repeated the dragon. And so I will call the dragons from far and wide, from the depths of the ocean, the ends of the earth, and we shall fight the final battle until it, <laughs> before it is too late. So the dragon furious, and I sort of partly see the dragon furious's point. He's, you know, he's, he thinks that the humans are going to make the dragons extinct. And so he started this huge dragon-human war, and the, the humans are fighting back. And this is when you realize that the first book was about, you thought you, the book series was about what if dragons really existed, but the whole series is answering a slightly different question. If dragons existed, where are they now? Why don't you see a dragon wandering down the high street? Where are the dragons? So, um, so Hiccup, as I say, he's had to stand up. That's him defying the Dragon Furious. As I say, I rather love the Dragon Furious. That's the Dragon Furious, and that's Hiccup on the back of the Windwalker defying him. Um, the, I'm bringing you to the, my latest book, How to Seize the Dragon's Jewel. And at the beginning of How to Save a Dragon's Jewel, um, Hiccup is an outcast. Um, he's an outcast. And... He's being hunted by, um, yeah, hang on. He's an outcast. He's being hunted by all um, the dragons of the Dragon Rebellion and all the humans under Alvin the Treacherous. Um, and he's an outcast because of his slave mark hiccup. And it's bad. I'm sorry, sorry, but sorry, grown ups. <laughs> but it is bad. His father has been put into the amber slave lands and has been made a slave and we can't find fish legs and it is not good. And Hiccup has been an outcast for six months um, at the beginning of this story. Um, and with only his hunting dragons, two hunting dragons and his riding dragon for company. So he's almost forgotten how to speak drag, um, Norse his own language, he can, because he's been speaking Dragonese for so long with his three dragons. He's all on his own for six months. Imagine, Hiccup is 13 at this stage, so still quite young to be all on his own for six months. First chapter starts, the warrior. And this is the warrior. Sorry, could we just lower the lights a bit so we can see the drawing? This is the warrior, and you can see the sword and the sinister face of the warrior behind, waiting up in a tree for Hiccup to come along. One cold moonlit winter night in the forgotten forest, a gigantic warrior sat high and still in a treetop like an angel of death. The warrior was out hunting. It had been on the trail of the outcast for many days. It was intending to kill this outcast, this enemy of the Wilder West. In those times, the humans and the dragons were at war, so it was strictly forbidden for humans to ride dragons anymore. 
But surprisingly, this warrior was seated on the back of a dragon. The dragon was an air dragon of the purest silver. Very, very rare and very, very dangerous. Now, the warrior waits for some time and then Hiccup comes along the path. You know, I said he was an outcast. You can see how he's got a black eye. That's the wind walker. Those are the toothless and the Woden's Fang. The Woden's Fang, by the way, is a sea dragon, yeah, which may think is strange, but sea dragons start out very small and then they grow huge. They live for thousands of years and then they go really, really small again. And so the Woden's Fang is like a small, you know, one of the small, older, thousand-year-old kind. So the warrior uh, jumps down on the back of, this is the warrior, now chasing after Hiccup. Hiccup has to jump on the back of his wind, wind walker with the warrior following after him, shooting arrows. It's a, it's, it's a chase. It's a chase on dragonback, basically, with the warrior chasing after um, Hiccup. And this is the moment at the end of the first chapter when Hiccup turns round and realises he recognises the dragon that the warrior is riding. Oh, for Thor's sake, you couldn't mistake that particular dragon. It was the silver phantom. Even though it was the dead of night, every silver scale was lit up and shone brighter than was strictly possible in real life. The silver phantom seemed to give off its own light like the moon. Its scream was so high and so loud, it felt as if it was setting fire to your ears. The silver phantom was absolutely unmistakable. It was unique. It also just so happened to be the riding dragon that belonged to Hiccup's mother. Mm. And that's a big moment because Hiccup has been brought up for the previous eight books entirely by his dad. And his mother has been off questing. And it's, uh, so it's a big moment when she enters suddenly and he can't talk to her because his helmet is jammed. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so that uh, is the start of the most recent one. Oh, yes, I'm very quickly going to talk about the movie. Um, <clears throat> you can see about seven or eight years ago, DreamWorks came and said they wanted to make a movie out of out of the books. Um, and there are many differences between the books and the movies, which, <laughs> the movies, I say movies because they're making three movies. Um, uh, the next one, 2014, one after that, 2016. Um, and sometimes people say, well, well do you mind? Um, and I don't mind for a number of reasons. One is that making three movies, not 12. <laughs> yeah, because if they wrote, might, make 12 will be 120 by the time they finish. Um, and so they had to make changes. They had to make changes. Uh, and sometimes for things to work in a different film, in a, in, in a different medium, yeah, they have to make changes. For instance, um, you know, if you're making a film about dragons in 3D, you sort of want your hero to be able to fly on the back of the dragon. And in the book series, he doesn't fly until um, book six. And it's a long way to wait till film six for your uh, hero to ride on the back of a dragon. So things like that are the reasons um, why they made differences between um, the films and the books. Um, he's flying on the back of this dragon. And I'm just going to show you. Oh. 
Next, oh, no, it's me doing the clicking. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and this is a picture of Hiccup growing up, uh, literally growing up through the process. That they, well, when they were making the movie, he started out really young. And by the time they finished all these different versions of Hiccup, um, he ends up looking like this. Uh, and here is a picture of Toothless um, when they're trying to work out how Toothless is going to look. And uh, if you can see in this picture, um, at the bottom, you can't quite see because it's behind all these books, but the animator is drawing a picture of Toothless moving. And you remember I said, um, people who make things up base things on real life. The animator has looked at his own cat. He's, he had a black cat. You know how Toothless looks like a black cat? Yeah, he looked at the way his cat moved and the way that birds fly, and he mixed them together to make you feel that this is a real creature. Yeah, this imaginary creature is real, making the lie seem real. Um, but I, I loved the movie. I have to say, I really enjoyed the movie. Who liked the movie? Yeah. Who had read the books first? Loads of markets. Who had read the books first and was a bit disappointed that, about the changes? You can perfectly say, if I don't mind at all, if you say that you were a bit disappointed. Okay. Yeah. And did you, did you, you can leave your hand up if you, did you actually mean that you didn't enjoy the movie? Did you, or did you forgive the movie? You did forgive the movie. Anybody didn't forgive the movie? Oh, no. You see, that's quite interesting. I, I, I love the films because I, I think they're great film, films. I'm saying one, all three of them, but um, only one so far. Um, I love the films because I think they're great films. And actually, I also get people coming who saw the films first before they read the film, the books. Yeah, I get new readers from, 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 the, um, uh, yeah, from, from the film. Who minded that that the toothless was different. Who minded about the differences between who wanted? Yeah. Did you forgive the books? You did. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you couldn't really say you didn't. <laughs> but yes, that's interesting. I think it's, you know, good books, it's important that a book is, you know, the books are good and the movies are good and they're sort of running parallel. Um, and mostly we get forgiven <laughs> for the differences. Um, now, that's the end of my talk. Oh, yes, enormous robotic dragon. That's these arena shows where they build, oh, not quite the size of this room. No, not quite, but quite nearly. Some of them are huge. You know, these arena shows that they do. You know, Walking with Dinosaurs, they're building these robot dragons which really fly above your head and breathe flyer. It's incredible what they can do. But that's not coming to here till next year. Okay, so that's my talk. Um, and there's an exhibition about all, you know, seven stories about, you know, all the things I've been talking about. We've got not only those photos, but real, you know, we've got video of that island I was talking about to you about, so you know that that really is true. We've got real Viking things at the, at the seven stories exhibition, haven't you, um, in, in, in Newcastle? Um, like, for instance, the ice skate and a sword that looks exactly like Hiccup Sword Endeavour, you know? And I thought, my, that is su such a coincidence. 
until I suddenly realized there were only two swords ever found in Jorvik, in Jorvik. And so I must have copied that one <laughs> when I drew, ah, oh, that would explain the coincidence of why it looks so like Endeavour. So, um, so yeah, we've got that and a comb with real knit eggs on it. I know all the parents in this room will identify with that. That brings the Vikings to life, doesn't it? <laughs> and it's got all, a, lot of, a lot of my illustrations, and it's great. And they've made you know, real little, well, stuffed dragons out of a stuffed mood dragon. Um, it's a great exhibition at a great place. So, any questions at all about children's from children or adults? You know, I don't mind about writing books, about having your books made into movies, about the museum, you know, the exhibition at Seven Stories, all about Vikings and dragons. Yes, darling. Oh my goodness, you have a bearded dragon called Windwalker. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm really pleased. Thank you. Well, I I have to because although okay, this is a quite a long, complicated. I'm not. Oh yes, sorry, I forgot. Um, when I first saw the movie, what did I think of it, was the question. Um, I have actually seen the movie as it's being made over seven years. So although they were making the movie, they were the screenwriter and they were doing it all, I have a really lovely relationship with them. So they show me everything they're doing as they talk about it as they go along. So it wasn't like a big surprise. And so the first bit, they kept it very close to the books. And then they had to change it because they didn't want, you know, they had to change things as it went along. Like, for instance, you might not think about this, but um, if, if you're Dragonese, you'd have to have subtitles and little people can't, you know, read subtitles. Or it might be a bit like Jar Jar Binks, you know, if he's talking, you know, Jar Jar Binks, hmm, Star Wars, hmm. Um, so that's why they made them not talk, you know. So there were lots, I was in on that, if you sort of mean. It wasn't me making the decisions, but... I was seeing what they were doing. So, it certainly is. Good point. And actually, at this exhibition, we have a beautiful book of the making of How to Train Your Dragon, which shows you all you know, the things that they went to to make it. Um, to, Terrible Terror was designed to be toothless, yeah? And, and then they changed as they went along. So it wasn't like a big surprise. However... When I first went, you can't really, because it's all storyboarding until a really late stage. You know, about five or six years in, yeah, it's still storyboarding. The first time I went to Los Angeles and saw the first completed scene was amazing. The first completed scene was, you know, the bit in the wood where he discovers Toothless for the first time? Um, that was the first scene um, that they made. And the rest of it was all pretty much in black and white. And it's, whoa, this is going to be great. And another little... <laughs> it was the, the cinema... There was a cinematographer, okay, who only does live-action films normally, who was the consultant on that. Somebody who does, you know, the Coen brothers, Oh, brother, where art thou? You know, the lighting for that, amazing. Anyway, he designed all the lighting. You know, it's really odd light, and it makes you feel, oh, 
is toothless friendly or is he not? It's, very, it's a great scene. So that moment was amazing. I thought, this is going to be great. Yes, kid with the... Why are the dragons in the movie book? not based? Well, some of them are, sweetheart. It's a kind of a mixture. So some of them, like the monstrous nightmare, you'll notice does look very like fireworm. And I do have gronkles in my, um, uh, in my books. And, and some, you know, Hiccup actually does look really rather like my Hiccup. And it's got that, you know vulnerability and it's extraordinary what they can do it feels almost like though he's a real boy now as well doesn't it it's extraordinary what they can do with animation nowadays so it sort of is and it isn't so the, some of the dragons are like the dragons in the books and some of them aren't it's a different thing running parallel yes kid here in the in the gray Uh, how do you get the characters' names, and what is your favourite character? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, actually, Vikings really were called weird names, like Ivar the Boneless and Magnus Barelegs. I think Ivar the Boneless was carried around on a shield, but I might have made that up. <laughs> I'm a bit unreliable. Um, so, I, so Vikings really were called weird names, and so I kind of try and make the characters sound a bit like the thing they're describing. So, um, you know, Snot Face, Snot Lout is, you know, horrible, mean, nasty character, and so is Dog's Breath, the Dare Brain. So I try and, you know, do it like that. Um, it's a bit like playing games with language, like the Dragonese. Um, and what was the other question? Oh, my favourite character. Mmm, hard one. I'm not sure, I'm not very good with favourite questions. Um, probably Hiccup, because Hiccup is so brave, I have to say. I think he's incredibly brave. Um, and he, you know, he's standing up against everybody else, all on his own, because he thinks it's the right thing to do. And I really admire that. There's a fantastic, um, there's a fantastic speech he makes at the end of this book, the latest book, are dragons never to sail through the skies again uh, or light up the world uh, once more with the glory of their firing bre breath? Are we to say to goodbye forever to the magic and the dreaming and the flying of our childhoods? I say no. And he says that in the amber slave land while a prisoner. You know, he's very, very brave. So I admire Hiccup the most. Yes, darling. Oh no, only Why one more question. Why are some of the dragons that are on the board there not actually in the film? Sorry, darling. Why are some of the dragons on the board not in the film? Because, well, there's a number of <laughs> Because they have to build the dragons in their computer. So they couldn't, you know, I draw them and they actually have to build these creatures almost, almost like they're in 3D in the, in the computer. So... You know, they can't make as many as I can make in my, in my books. They are just going to be different things, darling. And also, because <laughs> the other thing is, is that they quite like being creative themselves. It's a bit like, you know, I love it when you guys read book, my books and then go off and make up stories of your own and make up dragons of your own. 
In a way, it's a bit like that. It's lovely for the film to make up their own dragons as well and to, to make up their own story, which is a bit like my story, but tells its own story, if you sort what I mean. Does that answer your question? So it's, it's, because, um, it's because they can't build all those dragons, and it's because they want to have fun telling their story in their own way. So no more questions. Got time for any more I'm questions? So I've just got a small sneaky one. Oh, okay. We saw your dad there wrestling with a with a congareel. Oh, that wasn't my dad. It wasn't your dad. No, no, no. But you told us you told us that he wrestled with a congareel. Is your dad in a, in a character in the, in the, in the books? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, kind of. You know. So so he may be a little bit like. Sorry, the past. <laughs> Just a little bit. But he's much nicer. I mean, he's a sweetener. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little bit like Stoic the Vast. He sounded There's... a bit like Stoic the Vast, didn't he? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Very, very innocent... brave. Yes, very, very brave and quite reckless. <laughs> reckless. But yes. very sweet as well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, next, next year is a very special year for, for Durham because some, a very special book from the Dark Ages is going to be coming back to Durham, the Lindisfarne Gospels. And so if you want to get in the mood to taking you back to the Dark Ages, do come along to Seven Stories to enjoy our exhibition, which, which transports us back to the Dark Ages, tells us all about the times when the Vikings invaded the Northeast and about Cressida's inspiration for the How to Train Your Dragon books. Um, I think Cressida will be signing some books. So if you haven't had a chance to ask her a question, question you might be able to ask her um, after this um, after this session so can we put our hands together and have a big thank you for Cressida Cow <laughs> a lovely audience <laughs>